Welcome once again to Cinemaholics and welcome back to Extra Milestone and lots of changes for Extra Milestone, our film anniversary spinoff podcast, which we've been doing for a couple of years now. And we are, you know, starting a new era for this show. Now with me, John Agroni is, of course, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, my usual co-host on the main show, Will Ashton. Will, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you doing, John? I'm always doing great when you and I are going to talk about a classic film. It doesn't happen too often when it's just you and me. Yeah, I mean, we just did the main ep of Cinemaholics, just the two of us. But yeah, it's a pretty rare occurrence otherwise. So, yeah, in fact, yeah. I don't think I don't know if we've ever done an extra milestone just the two of us. But uh, you know, that said, I don't think so. That's yeah. uh, that's fine. We you know we we can adjust. We can make it work. <laughs> We're talking about one sure. of the most classic films of all time, City Lights. Mm-hmm. Uh, which came out in 1931, January 1931, January 30th, 1931. So we're coming up on the film anniversary. And yeah, that's uh, all right. Uh, 90 years. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a long, long time. And as I mentioned before, Extra Milestone is the spinoff show where we talk about a classic film, a film that went the extra milestone and is therefore an or it went the extra mile and is therefore an extra milestone. And we, we typically pick films from all over classic cinema. And in one of the eras we probably do the least, in fact, I know we do the least, is the silent film era. And, you know, it's not because we dislike silent films. It's just we know that uh, we, we haven't seen as many of those films. And we've seen a good number between myself, Will, and uh, Sam, who had to, had to step away from extra milestones. So, um, you know, but that said, this is the actually the second Charlie Chaplin film that we're doing for Extra Milestone. Will and I weren't here for it, but Sam talked about Gold Rush last year because that film celebrated an anniversary. I think it came out in 1925, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, this is the second one. And Will, this is our chance to talk about Charlie Chaplin. I feel like this is a discussion that has been a long time coming. I would hope so. I mean, Charlie Chaplin, uh, I would say he's probably one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, I, I still need to catch up on a number of his films, but I know definitely when I was in like high school and a little bit out of high school or not high school, college, a little bit out of college and in college, I was um, pretty into his films. And I remember absorbing them and just really appreciating what he's able to accomplish as a filmmaker and a performer. And uh, I don't know, I, I go back and forth on the whole like Chaplin versus Buster Keaton argument. And I can understand from an academic standpoint why people prefer Buster Keaton, but at the end of the day, I'm usually always going to go with Chaplin. That's just me, though. That's interesting. That's interesting. Now, I've talked about this on Cinemaholics before, on Extra Milestone before, and I am easily far and away a Buster Keaton guy. And to me, it's it's kind of like the age-old debate. It's Pepsi versus Coke. It's Beatles versus Bob Dylan, you know, stuff like that. I, for me, it's like there's no wrong answer to Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton. I think it just comes down to the type of silent film you respond to. And uh, for me, I respond to Buster Keaton a lot. I mean, we talked about Second Chances on Extra Milestone last year as well. And that was one of my favorite episodes that we did. And I I have to say, I think the reason I enjoy Buster Keaton films more is because if I'm watching a silent film, I, I really get swept up in the spectacle of it. I get swept up in just the daring visuals and stunt work. And I think Buster Keaton's physical acting and his eye for comedic physical comedy and slapstick, I just think is it's the kind that I prefer. It's just the kind that I respond to much more, even though Charlie Chaplin, I understand I, he is the he is the type of like filmmaker and actor who just 
there, there's something about his films that bring an emotional element to it that you don't really get with Buster yeah. Keaton. And I get there it. A, it's like just not and a sentimentality to it. Yeah, which I think, like I said before, that's why I say from an academic standpoint, like I think when you describe the two, I would gravitate more towards Buster Keaton. And admittedly, I'm more familiar with Chaplin than Keaton. So, you know, I could always change my tune once I get a little bit more acquainted with Keaton's work. But I just find that when I watch their two films, like I like Keaton a lot. And I obviously think he deserves his place in film history. But I often get a little bit more swept up with the romanticism in addition to the comedy with Chaplin's films. So I tend to gravitate towards him a little bit more ultimately. You know, and I think it was Roger Ebert who said that City Lights really like captures like all the different elements. Uh, I think he said his different notes of genius, if I'm remembering uh, his review of the film. And I think that that's exactly right, because in, on top of the emotional, like the the melodrama of Charlie Chaplin, I think City Lights also brings in the physical comedy. <laughs> it brings in the emotion. It brings in just that uh, amazing like uh coordination you know like mm-hmm. between the scenes and how everything works and what it represents and this film is interesting too because it's like the first one i think this is the first one charlie chaplin came out with after talkies really swept things away i know he had a film in like 19 like around the time the jazz singer came out and talkies were just yeah. like becoming a thing but by, i believe i think uh, was it the circus i think yeah i mean i know jazz singer i believe that came out in 1930 right the original jazz singer. If I'm, I'm thinking of the one correctly. that came out in like 1927. I could have my dates okay. wrong though. And I think that's jazz singer. It was like the first official talkie. It was terrible. Was that the, yeah, I think well, it yeah, was I 27, mean, but uh, you know, I could, uh, you know, <laughs> it was so mm-hmm. long ago. Well, I don't, you know, yeah, I barely I, remember I mean, 2019. Sure. This is why we need Sam Nolan. He's a little bit more <laughs> acute with this stuff, but um, I believe, cause I, I know what you're talking about. Cause with jazz singer, it's only like that one scene. I think it's actually dialogue driven, right? The rest of it's a silent film, but that was the first time that they had even a scene like that in the film. Or I could be wrong, and maybe I'm, I'm misremembering that, but I do know that that was, yeah, like the moment when everything kind of started to change for the uh, silent film versus talkie era. And then Chaplin stuck to his guns until I believe like the late 30s or maybe early 40s. Yeah. And then he had to basically go with the tides because that's what the studios were insisting that he did. Yeah, I, I just looked it up. Jazz Singer is 1927. And yeah, it's uh, it, it's definitely a, a milestone in its own right, <laughs> but not a great film, unfortunately. Uh, that yeah. said, what was that? I, no, I was agreeing. I mean, I, I haven't seen the whole thing, but from what I have seen, it's it's not really that good. <laughs> no, but that's all right. Um, so for City Lights, you know, it's an interesting film because it came in 1931, which really was a time when talkies were really starting to take over we were starting to get good talkie films and the first extra milestone you and i ever talked about was it happened one night which was 1934 Mm -hmm. so just a couple years after city lights comes like three years we get the like prototypical screwball comedy what would you say is the main difference though between i mean we should talk about what city lights is about of course but in terms of like a film like it happened one night which is you know it's such a clear you know, modern film, if if that's okay to yeah. say, compared to City Lights, which well, was a throwback before yeah. it was a throwback. Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, uh, Happened One Night is like the basically the trendsetter for what the modern romantic comedy is. And then uh, City Lights is obviously just such a hearkening back to the old fashioned 
sentimentality or like what was defined as your kind of traditional rom-com at the time. Well, obviously progressive in certain ways, because obviously, you know, Chaplin was expanding the length of his films and what he could do story-wise. But yeah, there is like this kind of, like you said, that kind of push and pull where he's, uh, you know, progressing as a filmmaker, but also holding back against the progressions of the medium at the time. So right. it's a little kind of fun dichotomy there, right there. Yeah. So, so City Lights, let's talk about it. It was written, produced and directed by Charlie Chaplin, who of course stars in it and, and, uh, composes, right? I think he's a composer as well. Um, I don't, I don't know if he's a composer, but I, I know he always has like a strong hand in the music itself. I don't know if he actually mm-hmm. like does the writing of the music. Uh, that's, that's not something I'm aware of, but, uh, if so, I wouldn't be surprised considering how meticulous he was with all of his films, you know? And, uh, yeah, I think, um, but we're in a lot of, I think a, a lot of people in his family were musicians. Like I know there's a story around that where a lot of well, them were like struggling musicians and yeah. they like helped him a lot with the music, but they didn't always get credited. I think, well, weren't they all like vaudeville performers? I think that's so. That's how you yeah. got to start in vaudeville. I thought that's what, like, I thought you just kind of went to the business that way. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, obviously he, you know, kind of followed the tides with Hollywood making films and he realized it was like a little bit easier and then you could obviously uh, hold on to it and, and produce a work of art that could, you know, go out into the world. And so he, he decided to be a filmmaker, but, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I know that this was around a time when, uh, you know, silent films stopped having like live orchestras as often, like that started going away around this time, which is, uh, quite a shame. Uh, have you ever seen a film with a live uh, orchestra before? Yeah, I've seen a few. Yeah. I mean, nothing beats it. <laughs> it's so great. And it's, it's, yeah. it's so sad that it, it's not as like common an occurrence. Like you really have to like plan, a, you know, really far in advance to, to uh, attend one of those. And it's usually like a really big film. It's never like a really small, quiet film or something like this, you know, that's like uh, such a, such a sweeping film that has such great music. But let's, let's actually get into the plot of City Lights. It's a very simple. I, I always love when these films open up with like the cards showing you how few characters there really are, and you can really just get a quick glimpse of the main players. But yeah, the the plot as it is is that uh, we follow the exploits of the Tramp, um, Charlie Charlie Chaplin's The Tramp, who is kind of just like this like this guy who is flying by the seat of his pants in life. He's just kind of going from place to place. He's kind of on the verge of basically being homeless, but it's very, uh, you know, it's, it's very ambiguous what his plight is. But I think the whole point of his character, especially in like in the context of the Great Depression when this was out, is he is like the, he's the everyman. He is the guy who's down yeah, his luck. Yeah. Well, not just the everyman, but the working man. Yeah. The guy who's just trying to, like you said, uh, kind of claim his stake in life, try to find the things that are such a, you know, part of the American dream and the American values that, yeah, he he often kind of fumbles when he's his own kind of, uh, um, I don't know, like lust or desires for whatever else kind of get in the way of his ambitions. But yeah, that's, right. that's the, the core of it. He's he is not a lionized working man. He's a flawed guy, you know, and he you know, we his introduction in this film, one of my favorite introductions of a character from this era. He is uh, Mm -hmm. sleeping on a statue and just kind of taking the piss out of this like big announcement with a bunch of characters. None of us really care about, but we watch him sort of like fumble around trying to escape the the wrath of a bunch of police who are trying to enjoy this moment. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not just any statue, but one that's supposed to represent, I think they said, like, peace and prosperity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as far as, like, the nation. Obviously, yeah, like you said, it's kind of taking the piss out of that because it's, you know, implying that uh, this is, you know, like, how do you even have a statue that <laughs> can represent peace and mortality? It's just, like, some, you know, weird, like, bureaucracy kind of thing that they're trying to do to, you know, claim this. But obviously, like you said, the tramp is just kind of there to unintentionally kind of take the piss out of it and, and you know, make a, a fool of everyone that that takes pride in this weird sure. monument. But yeah, you can you can read opening. into it even further and be like, it's him kind of being like, yeah, that's right. This is a silent film, <laughs> you know, in the era when talkies have made silent films obsolete. And it's quite a statement to, to open your film with. But over the course of this film, he befriends a millionaire. And so yep. he starts to get into some hijinks, of course. And then along the way, he falls in love with a woman who sells flowers who happens to be blind. And over the course of the film, he he starts to wonder, you know, in this this love story with this flower girl, if she was able to see him, would would she love him? If she saw him for who he really is, would she still think that he's handsome? Because he's definitely not rich, <laughs> and uh, so the, there, there's a lot of a uh, lot of back and forth there with his character, his arc. Yeah, I mean, well, you forgot to mention, but uh, the main thing with the millionaire character is that he only remembers the tramp half the time, and that's oh, yeah. when he is like <laughs> blistering drunk to the point where uh, he's you know, deeply suicidal. My goodness. And uh, yeah, which is such a, I, I, that's the part of the film that both times I watch this, is, it fascinates me because like, that's such a thin line that Chaplin walks. And obviously as a filmmaker and as a performer, he would obviously walk these very thin type ropes, often quite literally, uh, you know, with throughout his films, but you know, like just like in your first, like, I think like 10 or 15 minutes, having a character who is like, you know, uh, aggressively trying to commit suicide, uh, have this it that segment kind of be the antithesis for one of the most like prominent characters in the film and one of the most like bombastic comedy scenes yeah. in the film and it works it, it's you know it's something that shouldn't work but you know to Chaplin's credit he pulled it off it, it's a delightfully simple story and I think the reason it works is because I think I think it's pretty clear when you're watching the film that Chaplin knew that this would probably be his last silent film you know, there, there are people who say that, no, 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 Chaplin, he he thought the talkies were going to go away and they were a fad. He, he said that kind of thing publicly. Sure. There was, of course, his like sort of belligerence that talkies were not really here to stay and that there would always be room for silent films. And I think, though, he had to know the same thing that everybody else did, that it just it was not becoming economically feasible to put out a silent film like it used to, no matter how much you fight against it. And at this point in his career, I think it's it's pretty safe to say that he probably was looking at this as like his his like silent film epitaph. And of course, he would go on to make more great films, but uh, certainly nothing like this one. And yeah, I think that uh, the, the fact that he chose a a story that is so beautiful and, and so sweet and heartwarming, I think it does have a lot to do with the fact that he wanted to end it on a happy note. That That's my interpretation, at least. Yeah, I mean, definitely all of his uh, later films have this sweeping romanticism and sentimentality that I guess uh, tends to sometimes put some people off when they like we were talking about before, when we evaluate the great silent actors and directors of this time. But for me, I, I think it just makes it all the sweeter and all the more emotionally enriching that that we have such a kind of unabashedly romantic filmmaker and actor who is willing to tell this, you know, 
very simple, like you said, but ultimately very endearing and uh, emotionally gratifying mm-hmm. romance that, uh, you know, it's still very funny and has a lot of uh, winning moments in a comedic way. But, you know, he's able to kind of pull your heartstrings at the same time and, and get right. you to to care for the tramp as this, you know, this uh, rapscallion who just wants, wants someone to love him. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'll definitely say that we should be clear to you. The tramp always is silent, you know, even though like yeah. there, there would be dialogue in his later films, like modern times, for example, uh, there would be speech, but you know, the tramp, you know, I think sometimes the tramp maybe still made like quacking sounds, um, in the modern times, if I recall, but you know, he, it, it just tells you that in his heart, that character, that type of character was always a silent character and that that was something I don't think he would have ever wanted to change and it shows. And I think that's for the best because, you know, I, I just, it's just weird to hear, you know, Charlie Chaplin. I think we were talking about this before we were, we were recording that like, yeah, just hearing him talk is kind of strange. It just doesn't, it doesn't fit. Yeah. I mean, to reference what you're talking about before, like, I don't really mind seeing chap like Charlie Chaplin, the, the person like out of, uh, costume or out of you know his traditional tramp attire like i'm, I'm kind of used to it at this point um but hearing him talk is still the one thing that I, i'm still can never quite get over and i think that's one of the reasons why i haven't really dived into his later films even though i've heard uh quite a few of them are you know quite good but i i just i associate the tramp with him being this you know silent but always a uh, optimistic good do-gooder who's you know trying to do the right thing but never able to really say it, but, uh, that's just me at least. So, yeah. 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 Uh, I think that this is a character who, if we can bring it back to the Buster Keaton thing again, I think what I do like about the tramp and what I, what I do like about the way Chaplin brings him about is that he does have a lot of layers. I think with like Buster Keaton performances, they tend to be pretty simple, like not one dimensional, but definitely like you're, you're not supposed to be thinking about what that character is feeling. You're supposed to be thinking about the movie. You're supposed to be thinking about the like situational events and the plot. Whereas with this one, I think that the, the whole point is you're just seeing how some like all the different ways a character who can't talk can express themselves in a and just this like other world, this fantasy world, which makes me wonder, like, you know, we watch a film like this and it's kind of like being transported into something very escapist. But for the people who are watching this in the 1930s, it makes me wonder, you know, surely this was also escapism for them. This wasn't what they're, you know, this is a fantasy world in a lot of ways, but it's a lot closer to the world and the existence they were living in. So what do you make of that? Like, especially with the story, like, do you think that city lights is a good representation of what people were really going through, you know, at, at the height of the great depression when this came out? Uh, uh, I mean, I can't speak for them cause I'll never know what, don't you talk like to them to all the time? The great... though? <laughs> yeah. You know, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's an accurate depiction, but I, I do think that as Hart Chaplin's films were meant to, to sweep people off and, you know, take them their minds off of, you know, these horrible things that are going on in the day to day life and just indulge in the absurdity of this like uh, wacky fool who's just always like up to his ears and all these absurd situations. So, I mean, I would I would have to imagine based on his success and his continued relevance that it worked out and that the audiences embraced him in some fashion or another. But um, yeah, I, I don't know if it's an accurate depiction of what it's like at the time because I just I wasn't there. 
I wish I so. wish we could know. Yeah. My grandmother was alive during the Great Depression and I've never really talked to her about it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it, it's so long ago that like we can we can pick up certain cues. And I, I am so curious about like what people must have made of like you were talking about the, the just like the making light of suicide and also, you know, making light of blindness, which is, you know, it's it's definitely not something that would be it would be a lot harder to get away with something like that today. Uh, so the the blind woman is played by Virginia Sherrill. And I, I think like what, what really captivates me about this film and what, what makes it one of the Chaplin films I actually do like more than other ones. Like even though I love Buster Keaton films, I like Charlie Chaplin films. I really like this one. And I think the reason I do is because of how interpretive the ending kind of is. And we don't have to get into it yet because that would be giving stuff away. But I, I do I do really appreciate that like it sets up a like when you watch it, it sets up like a a very easy to understand relatable problem for this character where he's surrounded by people who don't really see him. You know, the, the millionaire guy can't really see him because he's drunk all the time. And, uh, the, the blind flower girl can't see him literally. And it, it feels like a pretty obvious metaphor or analogy for, you know, people who were outside of society at that point, who felt like they couldn't really contribute to anything. I mean, when you, when you think of people who were out of work during the great depression, that's such a strong connection to make with a film of a feeling like I don't have a job and you know, my clothes aren't the sharpest, but like, does anybody love me? And so that's why to me, like Charlie Chaplin was was probably like amazing therapy for a lot of people in the States and beyond who just really needed films like this at the time. Yeah. I mean, that, that gets, I think what we were saying before that Chaplin was a genius at balancing the comedy and the emotional pathos of his films and trying to find that balance without the one intruding the other, but rather having each of those aspects kind of benefit the other is, is such an, I don't know. I mean, most filmmakers can't even do that well today let alone while they're doing all these multiple jobs with the multiple hats like he was doing with all of his films. So, yeah, Chaplin was uh, one of the greats for sure. He was one of the greats. Um, is there anything you want to talk about story-wise before we do actually talk about the ending? Because I have plenty to say about that. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's quite a leap. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's... <laughs> I mean, the one thing I will say about the the film is that I I do really like it a lot. And I, I was telling you this before we recorded, I think... I liked even more upon rewatch because I was able to appreciate the little moments a little bit more that I'd forgotten mm-hmm. uh, since I hadn't seen it uh, in a few years. Like I, I had remembered the bigger stuff like the boxing scene. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. The opening <laughs> with with the flower uh, when he like they have the meet cute at the beginning. But I had forgotten like a lot of the kind of smaller details. Um, for instance, the uh, the dinner scene, which I think we also mentioned a little bit before we recorded uh, it is such a hilarious moment for a variety of reasons, uh, especially just like the little details that he's able to pull off. Just like the fact that like uh, for whatever reason, like anytime he's he goes onto the um, marble floor, he just acts like it's like an ice rink and he like can't really keep his balance or like hold on to his own. And the physicality of his performance while, uh, you know, doing these, you know, especially long takes and uh, in, in getting all these different aspects and rhythms right is just uh pretty amazing in his in its own right and those are moments that don't really stand out to me upon reflection but rewatch mm-hmm. them they, they they pop and they they bring a lot of amusement and joy for me yeah they do i i had totally forgotten a lot of little things because i think like yeah the boxing fight uh, his like footwork in that that's that's really really easy to remember it's such a memorable scene 
But there, there were also like little things. I was like, I don't even remember this. Like the the line of like, I'm driving. Oh, I'm driving. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that's when, good. Yeah. When he's like, uh, when he has the cart and he just an elephant like walks by and just just the mm-hmm. look on his face. It's not like a physical comedy scene. It's just like a, the perfect expression of him just being like, what kind of world do I live in right now? <laughs> and mm-hmm. stuff like that just makes me um, just kind of like swoon a bit for this movie. I don't know. I, I think what the bottom line of it i think the bottom line of this movie is just the timing i I think that's what all silent films tend to be known for it's like the poetry of their cinematography and how everything has to really be poetic without uh, dialogue but then also something that I, i don't know if everybody talks about enough is just how things are so perfectly timed in a very complicated stage production where they don't have special effects to really help yeah. them patch over mistakes. Uh, for example, the uh, the Star Spangled Banner thing, <laughs> where like just the timing of people like you know showing um, the, their appreciation for the Star Spangled Banner, including him, and uh, it, it's like you you could not time that better. I don't think, I, and I can't even imagine how many takes they must have had to have done to get it right. Yeah, I mean, going back to the Keaton Chaplin analogy, I, f- I feel like with Chaplin or uh, sorry, with Keaton, he had to be such a perfectionist because it's like, if I don't get this right, I could die. <laughs> like so many of his stunts like are so physically exacting that if, if he doesn't do it a certain way and, and at a certain time, like his his life and livelihood could be threatened. But often with Chaplin, yeah, I think because he was such a perfectionist. Uh, and because he was such, he had such a specific vision for his projects, he was able to communicate that really well. While also just being a super talented and uh, capable actor and performer, that uh, it just works wonders, and he's able to do all these amazing things on camera and and pull them off pretty spectacularly. All right, well, the time has come. Sure, what we have to decide the ending of City Lights. Does she love him? Do they end up together, or is this like The Graduate? where we're meant to sort of take away from it that, uh, nope, they, uh, they're, they're not going to work out. What do you, what do you think? Is this a happy ending in your mind? I mean, from what I can recall, like I said, it's been a few years since I've seen some of the other Chaplin movies, but more often than not, especially at this time, I feel like Chaplin, his sentimentality is such that he, he, he does want the best for his characters. And he often picks an ending that, that feels the most, uh, uplifting or the most hopeful especially like you said like given that this is the depression and you know he wants to make people feel a little bit better and get their minds off their troubles like i i have to assume that his intent is that this ending is a a love let or like a lovely note between these two uh mismatched characters who are finally able to see each other for the first time uh truth truthfully at least and uh hopefully foster a loving and sincere relationship but yeah, I mean, I can definitely see, you know, at that time, you know, like why? Because we just see only a brief little snippet of their uh, first real interaction together, at least uh, visually, that it might lead to something a little bit more depressing. But I, I'm hopeful that they're going to these kids are going to make it out. All right. Uh, well, Ashton, you a sentimental, you sentimental goon. You know, my my personal take on this whole thing, I personally believe that. It is a meta narrative, but I do think it's the kind of meta narrative that Chaplin himself doesn't really know if things are going to work out, and that's okay. Sure. I think like you could, there are two possible and two plausible interpretations. Like if you think that he represents his character represents the 
like the idea of like silent films and the flower girl represents the talkie, you know, and to him, he feels like the talkies are maybe blind to like what's valuable about the era before it because they're just trying to make a buck. They're just trying to be flashy and they're trying to, you know, rely on sound. Right. And Mm -hmm. he's saying that maybe, maybe I could make movies like this. Maybe like these eras can come together. That that's one, one takeaway that I think is kind of plausible, but like he's not sure that, you know, if it's going to work out, which is why he probably wants to leave it at least slightly ambiguous. So you could have a different takeaway. So maybe if you revisit this film decades later, you can uh, say, Oh, he was really saying this, you know what I mean? Like having that flexibility or having that, like that ability at all to have it both ways is what I think is pretty fascinating. The other meta narrative I think you could take away from this is he's looking at the blind girl as, uh, as actually like the past, and like he he's the present, you know, he feels like this silent character is his present. But like these other things are he's being forced to take on in order to be modern, which is like the quacking and everything like that. Mm-hmm. She represents like the romanticism of his past and and what came before. And he feels like people see it as like it, you know, it has to change. And so that's why the operation comes in. And once they get the operation, is it still going to be is he still going to be loved for who he is if he changes you know, the senses of his filmmaking. And I think the answer to that is yes. People went on, he went on to make more great films. And like it, I think that it was a happy ending for him professionally, but yeah. What what do you think? Do you think I need to just uh, chill out and uh, just watch the movie? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it, it wasn't yeah. super happy for, for <laughs> so I was like, do you, do you think I need to chill out? And you're like, yeah. <laughs> oh, I see. Uh, no, I mean, what I was going to say was that, I mean, the last, like, I want to say, like, five or ten years of Chaplin's life weren't super happy uh, for reasons you could look up on your own. <laughs> but yeah. um, uh, I, I will say, I mean, for me, I guess I'm a little bit closer to your second reading of the film and the ending in that I don't so much see it as the um, the blind girl represents so much solely the the invention of talkies and as much as uh, this new era in which, like, he doesn't know himself as a performer if he will be accepted into like this new era where everything's going to sh- uh, change and like you said like it's depression and there's so much economic uncertainty that like if his livelihood is uh no longer as it is like will he just fall into being this destitute nobody at this point where you know like all of his works like you're saying are just in the past and that he has to kind of forge his own way and for me it's a little bit more of that balance like he's trying to find his whether or not society at large will really appreciate him or at least he can find that niche that will continue to accept him and embrace him as an artist and performer so i like i said like i think in that regards it's it's mostly optimistic or hopeful and that like he's literally you know putting everything on the line just like putting all of his uh concentration effort and in, in his own nec- economic worth into this uh uncertain future and just hoping that you know it, it embraces him back and he can, you know, find that that forged connection again. But, you know, like I said, there's there's always room to be cynical in these type of things. And and I won't take away that necessarily, but I like to believe that it's going to work out for the tramp. Yeah, I, I do recommend people check out his autobiography because it, it does give a lot of context to this stuff. Um, we're not just pulling it out of nowhere. <laughs> you know, he, he did talk right. about this, you know, like. I remember reading about how when, you know, it was right after he had made the circus and one of the reasons he was so resistant to sound films, it really did come down to the fact that 
he had found a lot of success with silent films. And there was this fear of like, am I good enough or am I smart enough or am I, am I anything enough to find that same success if you change the entire medium? And that is such a relatable fear. It's a universal fear. And it just happens to coincide with the fear of people who, you know, upon this new decade, were feeling like, am I going to survive in this Great Depression? Am I going to find success in this new version of America that has these hardships that are just unfathomable to me right now. And I, I think that in his case, like he was a city lights was a successful movie. It's, you know, even at the time critics loved it uh, It made money. He was able to, you know, continue to make films. And I, I think that it, it helped bolster his confidence and there's definitely a happy ending outside of the film. And you can, you can look at it within the film as well, you know, and especially if you, you read up on like the transition between city lights and modern times, it's really fascinating what he went through. Cause he took a break from making, he took a break for making films. He traveled a lot and, you know, I guess it's a little cliche to say he found himself. And I think that one of the reasons he was able to do that was because people responded so well to city lights. And I think for good reason. I mean, City Lights is just a fantastic, you know, probably a masterpiece. I mean, I would call it a masterpiece because the prize fight, I think, is like one of the best physical comedy scenes ever made. And I do think that this is one of the best like film endings of that entire era. Like I would I know a lot of people would like put it in the highest regard, like all of cinema, too. But yeah, I mean, for you, Will, I mean, where where does City Lights kind of fall in for you and like the legacy of film? Are there things about it that do rise to that uh, that high, high echelon of like the best films ever made? Well, yeah, the legacy of film, that that's a, a kind of loaded question. But I'll start with Chaplin's legacy, which is that I think for me, when I think back on like my absolute favorite Charlie Chaplin films, I tend to gravitate more towards uh Modern Times and uh, The Gold Rush, just because I think those movies are so good at not only accomplishing such great timing and great delivery and and so many outstanding visuals and stuff, but I also think that his political messages come through and very, you know, present and clear, but also very distinctive and uh, enriching ways. And I, I tend to value those films, I guess, a little bit more than, than City Lights for that reason. But that's not to say that City Lights is... Uh, anywhere close to being a bad film rather I, like I said before I, I like it even more upon rewatch and I would still say that it's probably in his top five maybe even top three films as a as an actor and director I mean there, it's very easy to see why this movie has uh, continued to have such a clear and present uh, legacy in film history and cinema history and uh, I mean I I feel weird calling it a like the best like rom-com ever just because like to me, it's still a fairly like one sided story. Like we primarily follow the perspective of the tramp. And, you know, oftentimes the the blind woman doesn't doesn't get her full say. There are a couple scenes with just her. But I, I feel like maybe like if, if there's a little bit more balance, I could, could I could put it up there as among the best rom coms ever. But I mean, as one of the best comedies ever made, I mean, sure. I would definitely say it deserves that 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 legacy. I mean, it has some That's of the, the best quote. comedy moments. Yeah. Um, I mean, is it one of the best comedies ever made? Sure. Period. Will Ashton, Cinema Hall. Sure. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's it's just like like I said before. It's such a loaded question that I don't. I don't know. I mean that. That that's like a broad reaching question, but I mean, looking at it just like in terms of like like I said before, Chaplin's legacy and his filmography, I definitely put it up there and in pretty high esteem, if maybe not the absolute highest. But like I said, I mean, Chaplin, I consider him one of the absolute best at what he did, and one of the best. And 
best filmmakers in cinema history. So I would never really dissuade the accolades that get thrown his way. Oh, neither would I. Neither would I. Even though I am a Buster Keaton stan myself, I I just find his his films to be more effective for my cup. They're more my cup of tea. I, I, of course, I, I highly, highly respect and appreciate Charlie Chaplin, and I do really enjoy most of his films. I I don't agree with you on Gold Rush as much. I I don't like that one uh, nearly as much as I do City Lights. And uh, my favorite Chaplin film is Modern Times, though. I do agree with you there. Modern Times is uh, one of the first ones I saw. I think Great Dictator was the first Chaplin I saw, but Modern Times was the first one I saw that really, for me, was like, uh, like, I don't want to say the real Chaplin, but it was like the, the version of Chaplin, I, I think that like really sticks in my mind. And it, it, it's the sure. film that uh, definitely, definitely stuck with me in terms of romantic comedies. Yeah, I, I definitely don't think this is one of the best. I, I, I for exactly what you said, it, it really isn't like what's good about the movie isn't the romance. I mean, it, it really is more of like the symbolism of it. It's more of the artistry of and, and the staging of the the relationship between him and society more so than him and like any specific character for me, like the best romantic comedy is like, especially around this time, I, I definitely enjoy like it happened one night more than this one. And I, I think just because that film, I'll, you know, that, that film is uh, what it doesn't have as much in comedy. It has in character and like sure. really well-rounded characters and unforgettable ones. So yeah, I, that, that's where I stand. And uh, let us know where you stand on City Lights and any other Chaplin film you might want us to cover. I think the next Chaplin film we could cover is, um, what was the one that he, I know he came out with one in 1921. Was it The Kid? I don't want to, I keep, I yeah, keep. Yeah, I think so. Okay, yeah, I don't want to get that wrong. But yeah, I think The Kid came out in 1921 and uh, that that is celebrating an anniversary of 100 years uh, later this year. Yeah. I would have to look into when that came out actually i think i that think is, actually uh, that's around this time yeah i don't I, I did look it up it is 1921 but i don't know the month off the top of my head but all right i, I um, just brought it up will ashton february 1921 oh wow <laughs> we already go. have our february film picked out so we won't be able to talk yeah, about we, the kid <laughs> yeah there you go oh well um, but that said, we are looking forward to talking about our next film for next month uh, i won't say what it is because i i don't think it's going to change but i don't want to uh you know don't want to get people's hopes up, you know what I mean? Sure. But uh, that said, thank you so much for listening to Extra Milestone. Uh, let us know what you think of City Lights, if you've ever seen it, or if you're going to watch it for the first time after listening to us talk about it. Uh, Will oh, Ashton, should, uh, um, go ahead. I was going to say, if, if you want to stream it, I believe right now it's on, I watched it on HBO Max. And I also believe it's on the Criterion mm-hmm. uh, channel. I mean, I don't know if we mentioned that before, but I don't know if it's on Criterion channel. I think, uh, yeah, it might be. I think it goes back and forth on Criterion because they oh, take right? things off. Yeah, okay. I, I didn't see it, but I, I I found it on HBO Max pretty fast. Right. So it should yeah, be I mean, on there. I, yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if we mentioned that earlier, but that's probably something <laughs> we should mention if, if you yeah. want to check it out. But um, yeah, if, if, you, if you have HBO Max, it's right there. And, uh, yeah, check it out. Yeah, it's a quick watch. Uh, 87 minutes. That's just an yeah. hour and 27 of your time. Highly, highly recommended. It. It's an easy film to love and get into. Even if silent films aren't your favorite types of films, this is one of the ones that I think is definitely more accessible than others. And uh, hopefully it'll open the floodgates for um, for silent films, for more of them for you to watch and uh, enjoy in a new way. All right, well, that'll do it for us this month on Extra Milestone. We'll see you at the end of next month. That's right, we're doing this monthly from now on. 
And uh, Will is not going to be my co-host for Extra Milestone. I mean, Will's always invited to come on. But sure. Julia Tady is going to be <laughs> joining us. Yeah, whatever. Julia Tady is going sure. to be my regular co-host from Extra Milestone moving forward. Can't wait. Speaking of best rom-coms. Very exciting. Um, you know, The Apartment, which uh, she and I talked about a few weeks, okay. uh, months ago. But Okay. I, I wasn't sure where you were leading with that, but I, I okay, there you go. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's funny because we, we disagree on rom-coms all the time. We we have a lot of beef sure. when it comes to when Harry met Sally. Um, we're, we're definitely... Uh, where stand on that? Well, the you only thing where we disagree on when Harry met Sally, it's not the quality of the movie. It's whether or not it's a Christmas movie or a New Year's Eve movie. Same, oh. same dramas oh, okay. with The Apartment. But yeah. Okay, that that that's pretty petty stuff. I I, I thought you were gonna say that <laughs> she wasn't a fan of when Harry met Sally, which that would have been a shocker to me. But um, nevertheless, it doesn't sound like that's the case. I don't think it is. I mean, I don't think she said she disliked it. Yeah, Who I mean, knows? I'm not I'm not gonna put words in her mouth. I don't know, but yeah, well, uh, come on I, now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, you're like you're like hiding behind the referee from you know, <laughs> in the prize fight. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Back. We'll, we'll see you all in the next extra milestone and uh, on the main show. Uh, well, not next week because Will and I won't be there. Um, but uh, Abiel Chessie will be uh, hosting the show with a yeah. special guest. And uh, Will and I are off to Sundance. Will, grab your suitcase. We're heading to Park City virtually and uh, it's going to be a good time. Yeah. yeah, I'm very excited. So see you guys in a week.